Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a, pro- a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. My name is Sarah Ann Minkin, and I am the Director of Partnerships and Programs at the Foundation. Today is June 3rd, 2021, and I am joined by Yusuf Munayer, a non-resident fellow at, at Arab Center, Washington, D.C., and much admired analyst whose voice FMEP loves to amplify. Yusuf, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thanks for having me, Sarah. Great to be with you. When Yair Lapid succeeded yesterday in proposing his new coalition, I knew that I wanted to hear Yusuf's analysis and wanted to feature him on this podcast. So Yusuf, let's dive in. Yesterday, Yair Lapid of the Yeshatid party announced that he succeeded in forming a coalition that will oust Benjamin Netanyahu as prime minister of Israel. Lapid's coalition includes far-right parties like Yamina, New Hope, Israel Beitenu, as well as the so-called center, center-left parties, Kahol Levan, Lapid's Yeshatid, and the Zionist left parties, Labor, Labor and Meretz, as well as the Islamist party, Ram. What's your big picture analysis of this coalition? What do our listeners need to know about it? I, mean, I think the big picture here is that as far as Israel's policies towards the Palestinians are concerned, there's um, really no change at hand. Um, we are uh, seeing a um, replacement of characters uh, in, in, in many ways, but the policies are going to remain the same. Um, and this, you know, this coalition is the product now of several attempts to um, replace Benjamin Netanyahu, not to shift policy, um, but to remove this one central dominant corrupt figure in Israeli politics um, from, um, you know, from the center of the stage. Uh, and, you know, there have been several attempts to do this. Uh, and the first several attempts um, have tried to uh, remove Netanyahu um, through the so-called center-left. Um, and we, we remember back in 2015, of course, there was um, much fanfare around the candidacy of, um, you know, now new Israeli president, uh, and then candidate for for prime minister uh, Isaac Herzog, of course that that failed uh, an attempt through the traditional opposition to Likud, the Labour Party, um, that failed and the Labour Party essentially um, withered away in many ways. Um, the uh, attempts to replace Netanyahu that followed that um, took on sort of a uh, a different shape. Um, they, they were primarily led by former military figures. Uh, that um, attempted to shape their campaigns as sort of generic Israeli nationalist efforts uh, at, um, you know, saving the so-called uh, Israeli political system uh, by removing uh, Netanyahu um, so that, uh, you know, they could not be attacked as sort of uh, leftist efforts to replace the right. That also failed. Uh, and it was only when the primary challenges to Netanyahu also included right-wingers like Gideon Saar, like Naftali Bennett, um, that enough right-wing votes were uh, able to defect away from the Netanyahu camp to allow for an alternative coalition uh, to be formed. And I think what this really underscores is the extent to which the right-wing dominates Israeli politics. And in fact, um, you know, today uh, there is something like a hundred or so of the seats in the Israeli Knesset that are committed to a vision of perpetual Jewish domination of Palestinians throughout the entirety of the land. 
this is the largest um, this is the largest right wing majority that there has ever been in the Israeli Knesset. So I think that uh, you know it's obviously significant that a figure like Netanyahu, who has so dominated Israeli politics for as long as he has, um, is now very likely to no longer be prime minister. Um, at, at the same time, what I would call Netanyahuism uh, is still very much alive and kicking and dominant in Israeli politics and likely to continue shaping it um, moving forward. This particular coalition is precarious. They came together uh, around the idea, this one narrow idea of removing this one individual. Um, otherwise, there is little agreement. Um, but to keep the government together, uh, they are likely to not change any policies in any direction. Um, so this is going to be a continuation of the status quo, which of course for Palestinians we know is a status quo of apartheid, um, with a different face at the head of it. And of course the face at the head of it, Naftali Bennett, is, is a face of an unabashed uh, Israeli annexationist um, who is, you know, different than Netanyahu in that he doesn't even pretend um, that there uh, is a possibility of, um, you know, Palestinian self-determination. Uh, Netanyahu at least understood um, that uh, he had to occasionally uh, tell the world that there was uh, a need to, at some point, have negotiations with the Palestinians, come to an agreement, so on and so forth. Uh, Bennett is, is, is the opposite. He believes in Netanyahu's policies, but not the need um, to, to, to lie to the world about what Israel is doing. So, um, you know, I think that this government, should it stay uh, together, is not going to be changing very much. Um, and if it falls apart, there remains a very large right-wing contingent in the Israeli Knesset that it may or may not be led by Benjamin Netanyahu. We don't know how long he's going to be around in opposition. Uh, that is going to be there um, to come right back into leadership with a new constellation of, uh, of parties should this coalition fail. So, um, you know, I know there's going to be a lot of headlines about change. Uh, and in fact, this uh, coalition uh, is calling itself a change government. Um, but uh, Beyond the beyond the names and faces, very very little uh, is going to be changing here. Thank you for all of that, and I I want to ask you to unpack one piece of what you said for um, those listeners in our audience who are less familiar. You said that something like a hundred out of the one hundred and twenty members of the Knesset are are right wing and committed to Jewish domination over Palestinians. Will you, in a in two sentences, explain to our listeners what that means? It's sort of hard to do it in two sentences, but what, take more. But look, Israeli politics has been on a continual shift to the right for several decades now. Um, you know, there was a time where you know someone like um, you know Avigdor Lieberman was considered a far right ultra nationalist, and now he's at the center of Israeli politics, and some are even you know crazily defining him as you know part of the center left, whatever. Um, because so much of Israeli politics has, has, you know, centered around this question of removing Benjamin Netanyahu and normalizing his, his policies uh, while trying to denormalize him himself. Um, and so, you know, you have characters like Neftali Bennett now coming uh, into the center of Israeli politics and um, outright Kahanists coming into the Knesset in significant numbers 
um, this uh, time around uh, as well. And so the the number of parties that are actually in support of um, equal rights, for example, or willing to challenge the um, uh, the basic law around um, the uh, nation state of the Jewish people, which calls for only the Jewish people having the right to national self-determination in the entirety of the territory, um, uh, only make up about 20 seats in this uh, Israeli parliament. Um, and, and so that's precisely what I, what I mean by that. This commitment to Jewish domination um, is uh, not just mainstream, but it, um, it takes up almost the entirety of the political spectrum in Israel. Thank you. That was not two sentences, but it was close. That was perfect. Thank you. Um, so one of the really interesting pieces of this, of this coalition is that Mansour Abbas from the Ram Party, the United Arab List and Islamist Party, is not just supporting the coalition from the outside, but is actually in the coalition. So tell us a little bit of what, what do you make of this, of this choice and of this twist in Israeli politics? And what is his credibility like among Palestinian citizens? And one more question about him. He, has, um, he was the last one to sign the coalition agreement. And he, uh, he stated that he had achieved a certain number of promises, more funding for, the Palestinian, for Palestinian citizens of Israel, um, a, a freeze on demolitions of demolition of homes in the Nakab and the Negev of Palestinian homes, uh, a, a potential freeze on a law that is actually applied to the demolition of of Palestinian homes. So, what do you think about the possibility of him actually achieving what he's what he's saying he's going to achieve? So, you know, the engagement of uh, parties uh, that represent Palestinian citizens of Israel. Um, in Israeli politics um, has uh, sort of ebbed and flowed over the years. Um, and, uh, you know, participation among uh, that uh, constituency has gone up and down based on how much hope voters had actually saw in, um, you know, the, the, the effort to engage Israeli politics at all in delivering for, um, for their demands. Um, and, you know, there was a, a huge shift um, against engagement, um, you know, after, um, you know, the mid-90s uh, when um, a couple Arab parties actually supported the Rabin government from, uh, from the outside. Um, and it was not until this political experiment uh, of the uh, joint list, which unified a number of different political factions, um, that you saw a much greater degree of engagement and um, you saw this slate actually achieve a significant number of mandates in the Israeli parliament. Um, I think, though, what many came to realize is that even though as a unified slate they were able to achieve a large number of mandates, at one point becoming the maybe third largest party um, in the Israeli political system, um, they were never able to achieve much because they were never going to be allowed into uh, governance. Um, uh, and um, from the outside, they were not going to be able to get much done other than use their platforms to kind of speak about their issues. Um, but uh, little was achievable uh, beyond that. Um, and, you know, in this election cycle, that joint list was no longer joined together. Uh, they fell apart for a number of different reasons. 
Um, and one of them is because they had a fundamental disagreement about um, how they could possibly um, achieve something for their constituents. Um, with uh, several factions believing that uh, there was simply no way to be able to do that through engagement with the uh, Israeli government or participation in the Israeli government. Um, and uh, one like Mansour Abbas, for example, uh, who was willing to break from the others in that regard and say that, look, you know, I'd be willing to entertain even being in a Netanyahu government um, if they are going to commit to, um, you know, uh, giving us certain things uh, like the ones that, that you mentioned, you know, ending some of these home demolitions, providing funding, uh, and really importantly, doing something about the issue of um, crime that is impacting uh, Palestinian communities inside Israel, which has been um, really the main issue within that community in the last couple of years. Um, so, you know, what it's going to come down to, I think, uh, is um, whether or not Mansour Abbas is going to be able to deliver on his promises. You know, right now, this uh, coalition um, will promise him the moon. Uh, but uh, their main goal uh, is, of course, to remove Netanyahu. And what happens after that is, uh, you know, anybody's guess. Um, I am highly skeptical that the Israeli government is going to, um, you know, follow through on its promises to Mansour Abbas. Uh, and and even if they do, I think he's lost a tremendous amount of credibility among his constituents um, for playing the game that he has, which many, I think, see as um, a cynical effort to sort of uh, boost his profile, uh, knowing that um, he's not going to really get much uh, in return. But of course, time will tell. Um, and, you know, I think that if... Um, he is able uh, to uh, get the government to keep its commitments and, in fact, deliver on the things that they say they would, um, you know, that could change the way that many of his constituents see engagement with the Israeli government. Um, I highly doubt that's going to be the case. Uh, and I think, um, if anything, they're going to hold him accountable for that and he's going to lose a lot of support um, uh, because of it. Um, but this is a new phase in the politics of Palestinian citizens of Israel, and it's not exactly clear where it's going to go. I think it's also worth mentioning that this comes in sort of the uh, immediate wake of the massive demonstrations that we saw in recent weeks where Palestinian citizens of Israel were taking to the streets in the towns and cities where they live, carrying a Palestinian flag. Um, and showing uh, their um, connection and unity with Palestinians across the entire land. Um, Munsur Abbas has kind of gone in the opposite direction, uh, focusing on the um, particular needs of Palestinian citizens of Israel while being willing uh, to uh, jettison the broader uh, national goals of the Palestinian people. Um, and so time, time will tell exactly how costly that will be for him or uh, whether or, or not it will work out. Thank you. Talking about the politics of Palestinian citizens of Israel, and, and you talked about the joint list, which over the last few years was the 
achieved the status of being the third largest party in the Knesset um, and was was itself made up of four parties that like you just explained, one of which was Mansour Abbas's party, and he's now on his own. But the other, the original, the other three parties in the joint list remain and remain something of a political force. Um, they, several of them have said that they would vote against a Bennett Lapid government, they refused, but also that they won't stand in the way of such a government. What do you make of, of their, their politics now and their positions? Well, it's certainly confusing, right? I mean, I think that, um, you know, there is, there is a shared sense among Palestinians that there is little difference between Netanyahu and Bennett when it comes to um, the kind of policies towards Palestinians that uh, their governments would, uh, would put forward. Um, at the same time, there is uh, a sense that um, Netanyahu himself represents a unique and particular kind of danger uh, that is keeping Israeli politics stuck within a certain space. Um, and there is um, many who look at the role that Netanyahu has played in um, you know, attacking not just Palestinians, but also Israeli state institutions um, that are um, creating a more difficult political environment for everybody. Um, so uh, I think there is a sense that, um, yes, Netanyahu, Bennett, two sides of the same coin, uh, but if Netanyahu is out of the way, um, there is a chance that um, Israeli politics might open up to uh, create uh, different results. Now, what those results look like, I'm willing to bet that they're going to continue to be uh, right-wing uh, coalitions. But it definitely, um, it definitely changes uh, the way that campaigns will be run um, that issues will be uh, debated. Um, and while I think the right will continue to um, control those debates uh, and, and win them, um, they don't even become possible with Netanyahu still in the way. So I think that's, that is the rationale. Um, there's also, look, you know, a tremendous amount of vitriol in Israeli politics directed at Palestinian citizens of Israel. And sort of they will be blamed by everyone for everything, no matter what they do. Um, and so, uh, you know, you can look, for example, at the, the 1990s um, and uh, when Netanyahu was uh, first elected, um, you know, Palestinian citizens uh, of Israel had routinely been blamed for the failure of uh, Perez to defeat uh, Netanyahu. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, one of the things that these political leaders wrestle with is the way in which that they're going to be blamed by Israeli society for standing in the way of a broader objective, which is to remove Netanyahu uh, at this stage. So I think all of those things are probably weighing into the calculation here, which is why it seems um, to be quite a, a muddled sort of response. Great. Thank you so much. So let's talk about the U.S. And um, you mentioned all that. The headlines you were expecting to see, many of them are already out. This is change. This is a new government. It's a new day. Um, you wrote yesterday that one important question is, what will it mean for U.S. politics for there to be a different Israeli prime minister than Netanyahu? And is the, are the, are the, are the, is the, is the friction with Israel um, around Netanyahu or around policies? So what are, you, what are you expecting? What questions are you asking? What are you watching to see? in terms of U.S. policy and how the U.S. relates to this government? 
Yeah, I think this is this is one of the things that is going to be most interesting to sort of follow um, if um, we have a new prime minister in uh, in Israel. Benjamin Netanyahu has been the face of Israel to the world for the past twelve years and has served as prime minister for fifteen years longer than any um, any Israeli prime minister before him. Um, so he has really defined uh, what Israel is to the world. Um, that changing is important and is significant. Um, and what is also unique about Netanyahu is that nobody has been as involved uh, in American domestic politics um, in the way that uh, Netanyahu has, both um, in, in its extent and nature. Um, so, you know, in, in recent years, Netanyahu has not only been deeply involved in American domestic politics, but has been uh, engaged in a way that uh, was highly, highly politicized. Um, and you uh, see the results of that and sort of the partisan divide that has um, emerged on this issue, uh, not just in public opinion, but also increasingly in the behavior and statements of members of Congress, which is something that, um, for those of us who follow this issue for a long time, is a very significant um, sort of shift. Benjamin Netanyahu has a lot to do with that. And the way in which he went after President Obama um, during the Iran deal negotiations, the way that he uh, colluded with then Republican um, Speaker of the House uh, to uh, essentially have a um, you know a speech before a joint uh, meeting of Congress to lobby against the American president's signature foreign policy achievement um, is something that uh, definitely rubbed a lot of Democrats the wrong uh, way. Um, so I think there are going to be some voices. Uh, in the United States that look at uh, a change here and say that this is an opportunity to reset the American political relationship with Israel, um, even if the person who replaces Benjamin Netanyahu is a uh, uh, further right-wing ideologue like Naftali Bennett. Um, there will be some, including among Democrats, I think at the top of the party, um, who... Um, are, or will be willing to sort of reinstate a bipartisan consensus um, that was evaporating. Um, if, um, you know, a, a Bennett-led government um, returns to the sort of pre-Netanyahu status quo where they didn't engage in the kind of domestic partisan politics here in the United States that the, the Netanyahu-led governments did. Um, but I also think that there is a different segment of Democrats, and I think this is the future of the party, that understands the clash with Israel that is taking place as one that is not about the personalities at the top of the party, but the values uh, that their policies represent. Um, and I think this is what is really animating um, the clash between progressives and, and, um, uh, and Israeli representatives today. Um, it's that you have on one side a vision of justice, a vision of democracy, a vision of equality. And on the other side, in Israeli polit policies, of course, you have um, a, a vision of, of apartheid. That is what is fundamentally driving the clash. And of course, that is not going to change with Naftali Bennett. That is going to very much stay the same. Um, and so I think it's going to be interesting watching that play out. And I think you're going to see a greater... Um, tussle now between Democrats about what um, what the position towards Israeli policy uh, should be because of the shift. Great. Thank you so much. 
So I want to finish by actually asking you, I want to, I want to shift gears. Um, it's been a big, it's been a big month. It's been a big few weeks. And a couple of weeks ago, you published a piece in the nation and you wrote, uh, I have, this is, I'm quoting, I'm quoting you to you. I have been trying to think of a moment since 1948 when so broad a range of Palestinians have been exposed to as great a level of Israeli violence as they have in these last few days. And I don't think I can. You were talking about violence against Palestinians in Gaza, in Jerusalem, in the West Bank, and also inside of the Green Line, where mobs of Jewish extremists attacked Palestinians, including in Lid, your hometown. And, and since then, um, and many Palestinians, you, you spoke of this a, a moment ago, uh, Palestinians, many of them protested, um, were out in the streets. Now hundreds of Palestinian citizens have been arrested for taking part in protests, which is something that FMEP has been covering in our daily news roundup and our, our other podcasts. Um, and you wrote about also about this, this uprising of, of Palestinians out in the street of seeing mass mobilizations of Palestinians in protest across the West Bank, inside of Israel and Jerusalem and the diaspora, and a sense of unity as something that gave you hope, a great deal of hope. So it's now a few weeks later. I want to ask you, how are you seeing the events of these last few weeks? Well, I, I actually think it's still very early to kind of assess the impact of uh, what took place. And of course, you know, it's still also going on. Um, we are seeing a continuation of um, arrests by uh, the Israeli government in response to many of the protests that took place um, throughout um, the, uh, the, the uprising that, that, that you described. Um, in the West Bank, inside Israel, um, that has not stopped. And of course, the, um, you know, the, the, the ongoing policies that target Palestinians um, that existed before that moment are continuing to exist today. Um, but I do think it was a um, significant moment precisely because the scale and the scope of Palestinian mobilization in response uh, to what um, the uh, Israeli government was doing in Jerusalem and at Al-Aqsa Mosque in particular. Um, I think that you saw in that moment um, uh, something very hopeful, uh, which was um, popular mobilization uh, from the bottom um, that brought Palestinians together uh, in ways that the traditional frameworks uh, and divisions put forward by the leaders at the top were never able to do. Uh, and I think for decades, it, it has seemed that Palestinians have been stuck um, in these old frameworks that have left them unable uh, to uh, leverage their power as a people um, and to um, more directly confront um, the uh, oppression of the Israeli state. Um, and we are seeing in this moment um, a, a pathway for how that could happen. Um, so I think that um, that is a source of inspiration and um, what gets built upon that and how that gets channeled uh, is, of course, very important. And I think we're only at the very early stages uh, of uh, uh, of seeing that. So I think, you know, um, that was an eye opening moment for a lot of uh, people inside Palestine and outside about what is possible. Um, and I think that the last several weeks have also told us that, and this goes for, you know, inside Palestine and out, 
um, sometimes the the scale of change that we think is possible um, is 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 not necessarily accurate. Sometimes the ground is fertile for much greater change than we realize, um, and it's only in moments like this um, that um, that that sort of uh, becomes easy to to understand. And so I think that's going to have a uh, effect on the way people um, strategize about the way forward, um, that there is, in fact, um, much more support and much more unity around this issue than people may have previously realized. Thank you. Thanks for all of that. That was also a, a um, you gave us a reason, not that we needed one, to invite you back again for more analysis since it's early. We wanna know what you're thinking and we wanna share what you're thinking with our audience. So thank you, Yusuf, so much for sharing yourself today, your time, your analysis, your thoughts uh, with me, with our audience. And I wanna thank our listeners for tuning in. Please make sure to check out the FMEP website, www.fmep.org. Please make sure you're subscribed to this podcast to stay up to date. We are We add one to two podcasts a week. And you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. And with that, I am Sarah Ann Minkin signing off. Thank you so much, Yusuf. Thank you to our listeners. Take care. Thank you.